Romans chapter 6. This is part 8 in a series that I have simply entitled Romans. Um, And we have been making our way through Paul's seminal letter to the Christians in Rome. And as I mentioned last week, everything Paul says in these chapters is everything he wants us to know about our sin, God's grace, the nature and flavor of the Christian faith and the Christian life. And so theologians and scholars have for a long time said that Romans really is Paul's systematic theology of the gospel. And he hadn't had the opportunity yet to go to Rome. And so he writes this letter and basically says, this is exactly what I would preach if I were to make it to you. I hope to make it to you. I long to make it to you. I'm not sure I will make it to you. If, in fact, I can't make it to you, this is my sermon to you. And so he begins um, by telling us in the first three chapters that we are all guilty, that we have all fallen short of God's glory, that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what you have failed to do. It doesn't matter your family background. It doesn't matter what secrets you hold. It doesn't matter if you think you're good or bad, whether you're moral or immoral, religious or irreligious, bad or good. We are all under the same sentence from God, and that sentence is guilty. And then he bleeds over into chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and onwards, and he begins to talk about the radical deliverance of God for sinners like me. And so I've really divided this book into three sections. The first three chapters uh, is the diagnosis section where Paul diagnoses all of us as having the same disease. And then he bleeds into the deliverance section where he begins to articulate just the hilarity of God's amazing grace. And then as he gets into chapter 12, he begins to describe what life on the ground looks like to those who have been freed by God and his grace. But this morning, I want to look at Romans chapter 6. We finished chapter 5 last week. This is chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. So Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, reading down through verse 14. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And may God help all of us to understand these explosive words and leave here today set free. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would show us our sin and then show us your strength. I pray that you would speak a word of good news over all of us that we would hear perhaps for the first time this morning that it is finished. That in the person of Jesus, you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That word never grows old, and we never, ever, ever grow beyond our need to hear it. So I pray that you would unstop our ears and you would open our hearts and we would be receptive to the glorious truth that Jesus paid it all and that as a result, things between you and us have been set right forever. I pray that you would overpower our unbelief, any part of us that thinks that seems just too good to be true. I pray that you would overpower our unbelief and grant us faith to see. Grant us faith to see and to hear good news as it comes from you through these verses. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned, Paul spends the first three chapters giving us bad news. He tells us that no matter how good or bad you think you are, you're guilty. You are unrighteous. You're far worse than you think you are. He makes it very, very, very clear in those chapters that we are, we're in trouble. All of us are in trouble. And he doesn't just describe people in trouble as rule breakers and rebellious people. He says all of us, whether we think we're rule keepers or rule breakers, as I mentioned, whether we think we're religious or irreligious, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter who we are, where we've come from, what we've done or failed to do. It doesn't matter. We're all guilty. And he wants us to feel at the end of chapter three, this weight. He wants us to feel the hammer of God coming down and announcing over the entire human race, you're guilty because he wants us to feel our desperation. Because we won't understand what he begins to tell us in chapter 4, 5, and here chapter 6 if we're not first absolutely on our back with no way out but up. Because it's those who are on their back with no way out but up. It's those who are at the absolute end of themselves who can see and hear good news and who can understand God's grace. So after the first three chapters, he spends two chapters telling us of the radically free rescue of God in chapter 4 and chapter 5, that Jesus has done it all, paid it all, removed our guilt, and forever set things right between us and God. And he ends chapter 5, if you remember from last week, by saying something that is 
remarkably scandalous. He says, essentially, where there is a lot of sin, there is even more grace. Now, some people have misinterpreted that and said, and we'll see here in just a second, beginning in chapter 6, some people misinterpret that and go, Paul's encouraging people to sin. He's not encouraging anything. He's simply stating a fact, a fact that has saved your life, a fact that has saved my life, the fact that where there is a lot of sin, there is even more grace. That's good news, and that because of Jesus' finished work for us, we can never, ever, ever out the coverage of God's love and forgiveness. That's what he wants us to know at the end of chapter 5. And then this chapter opens with the question that naturally comes when God's grace is preached with the kind of radical freedom that Paul delivers here. I mean, he has said some pretty radical stuff, some remarkably counterintuitive stuff. He's made it pretty clear that this whole thing is riding on the shoulders of another, one who succeeded where we failed, one who was perpetually good where we are continually bad. He goes on to tell us in chapter 4 and 5 by pointing us back to both Abraham, pointing us back to Adam, pointing us back to the beginning of time, and showing us essentially that God has always been in the business of meeting sin with salvation. He's always been in the business of meeting guilt with grace. Always, always, always. And so, of course, the people reading this would essentially, and he anticipates this, he knows what questions are coming into their minds. He anticipates this and he says, essentially, I know what you're thinking. Given everything I've just said to you, I know what you're thinking. Well, this is a great deal. I mean, if there is nothing we can do to out the coverage of God's love and forgiveness, if this whole thing is riding on Jesus and not me, if this whole thing is about his performance for me and not my performance for him, his obedience for me and not my obedience for him, if that's what this whole enterprise is about, then shouldn't we just go out sinning even more? Because you just said, Paul, that where there is a lot of sin, there's a lot of grace. We like, or there's even more grace. We want more grace. So maybe we should go out sinning more and more and more and more. Sounds like a great deal. Okay. He anticipates this question. Um, and he's basically saying something here in response that blows our mind. And I, I want to get to that in a second, because he does something really interesting here in response to that question. Um, but I'll get to that in a moment. Let me just say this, okay? Let me, this is, I've been waiting for this passage, okay? I've literally been waiting for this passage. I love this passage. I love all passages, but I really like this one. Because what it reminds me of is that throughout history, including Jesus and Paul, okay, throughout history, um, those who have been stubbornly, myopically committed to preaching the gospel without butts and breaks, footnotes and qualifications, have been charged, accused of preaching lawlessness throughout history. Okay, throughout history, people like Jesus, people like Paul, were accused because of the things that they said, because of the radical things that they said regarding the one-way love of God, people accuse them, through, people accuse them, and throughout history, as I'll show in a second, people have been accusing people like that 
for preaching lawlessness. Pre I mean, Paul, interestingly, okay, Jesus, Paul, Martin Luther, you name it. Isn't it interesting that none of them were ever accused of being legalists? None of them. None of them were ever accused of preaching legalism. They were regularly accused of preaching lawlessness. I mean, this is why the Pharisees hated Jesus. I mean, he was such a rabble rouser, you know? If the things he was saying were true, everything was going to fall through the cracks. All of the control that they had successfully established would fall through the cracks because in the minds of most people, this whole thing is about morality. This whole thing is about cleaning up your bad behavior. And if you talk about grace this way, if you talk about unconditional love this way, people are going to have no reason whatsoever to clean up their act. And so throughout history, people have been accused, people who have been stubbornly committed to preaching the gospel without butts and breaks have been charged, accused with preaching lawlessness. The word antinomian, okay, it's a big word, but the word antinomian is a word that Martin Luther coined, and it literally means anti-law. Namos is the word for law, the Greek word for law, anti, it really means anti-law. And an antinomian is someone who basically says that God's law has no place in the life of a Christian, that once someone has been saved by God's grace, God's law is completely irrelevant. And there have been some throughout history who've taught this, okay, who have preached this, but there have been lots of people, lots and lots and lots of people, including Jesus, Paul, Luther, me, good company, who have been called antinomians because they preach grace alone, okay, lots of people. People are just scared, you know, way too many pulpits are, are, just filled with fear, fear, lack of faith that the gospel actually can do what God says it can do. There's just so much fear that if we, if we just let this wild dog out of its cage, I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to my teenage son? Sons, what's going to happen to my daughter? What's going to happen, you know, what's going to happen to all of the manufactured control I've been spending my entire life trying to accomplish? What's going to happen to that if we preach this stuff? It's an expression of radical unbelief. We just don't believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We just don't believe it. And so we taper it back. We add footnotes and qualifications. I, I've told you before that um, I grew up hearing more about what grace was not than what it was. I heard lots about grace growing up. But I heard more about what it wasn't than what it was because everyone's scared to death of it. Everyone's so afraid that if this is actually preached without strings attached, things are going to go to hell in a handbasket. Um, I, I mean, I've been called this. So if you get online and you read the criticisms of me, I've been called this stuff. I don't care. 
okay? I really don't. It goes in one ear and out the other. Um, and it's not that I don't evaluate when I'm criticized, and it's not that I'm unteachable uh, and I don't evaluate. I do, but when the same charge comes that went to Jesus, I feel like I'm in good company, okay? Um, but what's so ironic is that I preach the law every week. Not the cheap version, like, you know, be nice to people, but the real version, be perfect. Because that's the only thing God accepts. The only thing that gets you to God is perfection. Not your progress, not I'm getting better, not I used to be this way at 21 and now I'm this way at 41. There's a lot of progress there, a lot of ground covered. Not that, that's cheap law. You know, I've said before this idea of cheap law. The greatest problem in the church today is not cheap grace, it's cheap law. Believing that God accepts anything smaller than the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Believing that God accepts anything smaller than Christ's perfection is a version of cheap law. Um, so, in fact, I mean, my, my goal every week is to use God's law, his demands, his unwavering, unqualified demands to show you that you're a lot worse than you think you are because only then will you be open to the grace that God offers. Okay, so um, if you hear out there, you know, wherever out there is, um, if you hear out there that Tullian is an antinomian, hopefully now you'll have some, you know, uh, recourse of action to say that's simply not true. But as I mentioned, it's just so interesting to me that no one ever accused Jesus or Paul or Martin Luther or any of these people of, of being a legalist. It's very telling. No one ever accused him of that. They were never thought to be guilty of preaching legalism. They were routinely thought to be guilty of preaching um, lawlessness. Let me, let me give you this killer quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a very well-known preacher in uh, England um, in the mid to late 20th century. Um, one of the greatest preachers that has ever lived in the opinions of many. Listen to what he says. If your presentation of the gospel does not expose it to the danger of antinomianism, you're probably not putting it correctly. Because the doctrine of God's free grace will always be exposed to the charge of lawlessness. Paul was charged with it. So I say it is actually a very good test of preaching. So let all of us test our preaching, our conversation, and our talk to others about the gospel by that particular text. If you're not test, if you're not misunderstood and slanderously reported as an antinomian, it's because you don't believe the gospel truly and you don't preach it truly. So there you go. Game over. Drop the mic. Walk off the stage. All right. Lloyd-Jones gets the last word. I mean, do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying that this stuff is so radical. It's so out of this world, mind-blowing, this one-way love of God, that conditional people like you and me 
just can't wrap our heads around it and we scrape for an explanation as to why this is wrong. We dig for an explanation because it just doesn't compute. And the best thing we can come up with is, well, that's your... That's lawlessness. You're preaching lawlessness. Doesn't God demand obedience? He does. How you doing? How you doing? Seriously. And don't give me some answer like, well, I was better today than yesterday. Okay, that, that may be true. Probably false. May be true. Depends on how you define better. The fact that you're aware of the fact that you're getting better actually makes you worse than yesterday. Okay? So, I mean, we can dig. If you want to dig, we want to dig, dig, dig. We'll dig. All right? Um, but the fact of the matter is, um, you know, the response is, well, but God demands holiness and God demands, you know, God demands obedience and blah, blah, blah. That's true. It's absolutely true. I affirm it all of my might. And I just have to sit back and say, so how are you doing? I mean, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So wives, how are your husbands doing in that regard? I mean, we're not talking about, I took out the garbage. We're talking about, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Died for her. Bled for her. Gave himself up for her. Loved the church with perfection. So, you know, I mean, there's lots of places when it says, you know, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So how are you doing? I mean, how are you really, really doing? And I'm not simply talking about, as I said, how are you doing on the outside? I mean, God's demands probe deeper than that. It's not just any kind of obedience God requires. It's perfect obedience. And it's not just external action that God requires, it's internal motivation. So it's not just, you know, um, I, even though I grit my teeth, I did what I was asked to do. And I go, where in the world did we get this idea that if we obey God, even though our hearts are far from him and we don't want to obey him, that it's something honorable. Now, I'm not saying, you know, do, thing, do the right thing only when you want to. I'm saying do it anyway because it serves your neighbor. Do it anyway. Okay, don't, don't sit around on the couch waiting to feel like loving someone until you love someone. Don't do that. Love them even if you don't want to. But once you're done with that act, don't sit back on the couch proud that you've done something to honor God. Nowhere in the Bible. I mean, J Jesus says... Himself, with your lips you worship me to the Pharisees, but your hearts are far from me. So when we do the right thing with the wrong motive, it doesn't reveal deep righteousness. It reveals deep unrighteousness and pushes us back to the finished work of Christ. So I go, you know, um, all of these things when you are committed stubbornly, which I am, stubbornly. The louder people get, the louder I get, okay? And I've said, if they exile me to the Isle of Patmos, I will preach this stuff to the trees, okay? Preach it to the trees. I mean, I, I can't. It's what saves my life 
every day. How can I say anything different? And so, um, and so I'm stubbornly committed to saying these things. And when you are like a bulldog with a bone in your mouth, when you are stubbornly committed to saying these things, these charges will come. They always have, and they always will. And Lloyd-Jones says that's actually maybe the best test of preaching. Maybe the best test of orthodoxy, because if people aren't walking away going, hold on a second, you probably haven't preached it in all of the radicality that it's presented here. Well, Paul knows what he has said in chapter 4 and 5, and he knows it's so radical and so counterintuitive that some will hear it as an invitation to go nuts. And so he anticipates this question. And he says, when he, when he poses this question, what shall we say then? Uh, shall we sin more so that grace may abound? Notice what he says first. He says, no way. No way. That, that, that it, no, that is not what I'm saying. You may be thinking that's what I'm saying, but that is not what I'm saying. And then you would expect him to do something very, very different than what he actually does. You would expect him to kind of back off, bring some balance into the equation, okay? He doesn't do that. And we'll see what he does here in a second. You like that, don't you, Zach? Yeah, it's funny. You're the only one, but... Um, the way he answers his own question is incredibly instructive for us, and it gives us insight into the transforming power of the gospel of grace. Because I would imagine that it would have been very tempting for Paul, as it is with us when we're dealing with licentious people, to put the brakes on grace and give some law here. But he doesn't do it. He actually goes deeper into the gospel here. In other words, he sees the answer to this question. He sees the answer to this question as being, we need to go deeper into the gospel, not walk away from it. If this is what you think I'm saying, it's not that you get the gospel too much. It's that you get it too little. And so I have to press it in even further. Um, I mean, he just doesn't answer this question by backing off the gospel of grace. He answers it by driving the gospel of grace even deeper in a more profound way. I mean, most of us assume, okay, this is just the way we think. Most of us assume that championing ethics will make us more ethical. Most of us assume that preaching obedience will make us more obedient. That's the answer. We live you know, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. A wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will save me from this body of death, blah, blah, blah. We see it throughout the Bible. And therefore, I need to preach cleanliness. How do we deal with, un how do I deal with the uncleanliness in your life and the uncleanliness in my life? Well, I'll just preach cleanliness to me. How has that ever worked with your children? You know? I mean, you, they might clean their room but they don't like you. And God's interested in not only our doing the right thing, but doing it out of love for him and love for others. Um, I mean, most of us just assume that focusing on the law will make us more lawful, but is that the way it works? Paul doesn't think so. If that's, if that's the way it worked, Paul would do something very, very different 
than he actually does in the rest of these verses. I completely understand how natural it is to conclude that given our restraint-free cultural context, preachers in our day should be very wary of talking about grace at all. I get it. We look around at the world and we go, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, you think, this, you think these people need to hear about God's love and the grace of God? You think that? I mean, I, we shouldn't even talk about that stuff. The pendulum... Terrible argument, the whole pendulum swing thing. Legalism's not the problem today. Uh, what's the problem is lawlessness, so we need to go over here. Let's go away from the gospel, which is the answer to legalism. Let's go to something else, you know, which is the answer over here. Okay, don't believe that stuff. I mean, it's just flat out not true. But this idea that, you know, okay, I look around at my cultural context. I look around at the people in my office. I look at my neighbor, George. Um... And, um, and I think, is that really what he needs? Is that, really what he, is that really what these people need? Is that what our world needs? Our world needs to hear about God's love and God's grace. That's really what's going to change them. I mean, the last thing lawless people need to hear is something about God's grace. I mean, surely they'll take advantage of it and get worse, not better. I mean, after all, it seems logical that the only way to save licentious people is to intensify our exhortations to behave. Therefore, what we desperately need today is a renewed focus on ethics and duty and behavior and so on. That's the way we think. You know it's true because that's the way you think. It's the way I think. The gospel does not make sense. Okay, it's, it's, in one sense, it's, the gospel is not irrational, but it is very supra-rational. It doesn't go against reason, but it goes beyond it, above and beyond it. It's, it's otherworldly, which means when it breaks into our world, it doesn't make natural sense to us. It just doesn't. I've used the illustration before about, um, you know, just this idea that we don't, we don't simply need, the gospel is not just an app for our old operating system. It's a completely new operating system. A completely new operating system. We don't just add it on to sort of the conditional operating system that we have, it's, it's a brand new unconditional operating system. And the work of the law, God's law, is to break down and remove over the course of our lifetime the old operating system. And the work of the gospel is to rebuild us with a brand new operating system. So the tension that you and I feel, the tension that Paul gets into in Romans chapter 7, that tension is the normal Christian life. It's the normal Christian life because we are being deconstructed and reconstructed. And so, um, I mean, I mean, it just, it's funny because what I want to say to people is, so what you're saying is God doesn't think that the saving solution for the rebellious is his free grace? Is that what you're saying? Like, what's the saving solution here? Something other than his grace? Is that the saving solution? I mean, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what the hang-up is. Are you saying that the way God saved you, the kindness of the Lord that led you to repentance, is different for the guy over there? I mean, is, is, it, 
Is it not God's grace and God's grace alone that saved a wretch like you? What was it that saved you? Exhortations to do more and try harder? I mean, the placement of demands on your shoulders by your parents, is that what grew love for Jesus and made you follow him? That's not the way it worked for me. That's not the way it worked for you. The hound of heaven graciously tracked me down and magnificently defeated me. That's the way it worked for me. It was his kindness, his one-way love, his pursuing, mugging love that rescued me and raised me from death to life. And that's the, that's the way God works with everyone. So when I look at the sort of rebellious, disobedient people that make up our culture, if I think anything other than it will be God's grace and God's grace alone that saves them, I'm thinking very differently than the way the Bible presents it here. I mean, I, it just doesn't make sense. It seems so backwards to think that, it's, that God's grace is the answer to badness. Um, I have a friend named Matt Richard who wrote this not long ago. And I think he hits the nail right on the head. He says, I have found that as Christians, we many times attribute lawlessness, disobedience, bad behavior, immorality, that sort of thing, to the preaching of the gospel. Somewhere in our thinking, we rationalize that if the gospel is presented as too free, too unconditional, or that Jesus fulfills the law for us, that the result will be lax morality, loose living, and lawlessness. It's as if we believe that the freeing message of the gospel actually produces, encourages, and grants people a license to sin. Because of this rationalization, the way that we think, we find ourselves strapping, holding, and attaching restrictions to the gospel so that we might prevent or limit lawlessness. In other words, the gospel is placed into bondage due to our rationalization and reaction to lawlessness, which is why wherever I go, people say the same thing when I say what I say. Why have I grown up in church my whole life and have never heard this stuff? Why? Is what you're saying true? Is that really what the Bible says? Well, if that's what, why have I not heard this before? See, the truth is that lawlessness and moral laxity Paul gets this, happens not when we hear too much grace, but when we hear too little of it. I mean, you know this to be true in your own life. Does criticism, constant criticism, does that, does that create intimacy? Does that generate loyalty to the person who's criticizing? I got a letter about a year and a half ago from someone I've never met. We get lots of letters, and lots of them say about the same thing. This one struck me. This one really struck me, even though he basically says a lot of the same things that lots of the letters we get say. But he said this, this man writing this. He says, over the last couple of years, we have been really struggling with the preaching in our church as it has been very law-laden and moralistic. After listening week after week, I feel condemned with no power to overcome my lack of ability to obey. 
Over the last several months, I have found myself very spiritually depressed to the point where I have no desire to even attend church. Pastors are so concerned about somehow preaching too much grace as if that is possible because they wrongly believe that type of preaching leads to less devotion and loyalty to God. But I can testify that the opposite is actually true. When only law is preached, it leads to the realization that I can't follow it, so I might as well quit trying. And then he ends by saying, at least that's what's happened to me. So it has the exact opposite effect. The ironic thing about the law is that it not only doesn't make people work harder, it makes them give up. Preaching moralism does not produce morality. It actually produces immorality because you just quit. You quit. You know, why even try? I mean, I, if this whole thing is about me steadying myself on the treadmill of performance to maintain favor with God, I'm worn out, I'm tired, and I'm sick of pretending. I'm getting off. I quit. And to be honest with you, um, I actually have more respect for people who leave churches like that than those who stay, because they're being honest. This guy's being honest. He's actually being more biblical than his preacher. I mean, he's, just, he's being honest. He's saying, I can't do it, and I, I can't even pretend anymore to do it. I'm just not making the grade. I'm not cutting it. What I desperately need to hear is that someone cut it for me, and I never hear it. What I desperately need to hear is that someone stood in the gap for me, that someone took the blows that I rightly deserve, that someone came and did for me what I perpetually cannot do for myself. That's what I need to hear, as I've said before. I mean, where else in all of society, where else are you going to hear good news? Where else are you going to hear it is finished if you don't hear it here? Where are you going to hear it? You're not going to hear it out there. You're not going to hear it on television. You're not going to read it in the newspaper. I mean, you're not going to get it at work. You're not going to get it anywhere. Which is why Zach opened the service with the passage that he read this morning. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, church should be the one place where weary and heavy laden people should be able to come and find rest. And hear good news. And all too often, it's not. You see, Paul knows that licentious people are, are not those who believe the gospel of grace too much. He, he realizes that if you're asking the question that he asks in verse 1 and 2, if you're asking that stuff, it's because you get the gospel too little, not too much, which is why he drives it home even deeper. He talks about the present power of the death and resurrection of Jesus, two events that are not simply historical. We embrace and affirm and confess the historicity, and we will celebrate that. Come Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we'll celebrate the fact that these things actually happen. This isn't a fairy tale. This actually happened. But we don't simply affirm their historicity. What we affirm also is what Paul says here. The, the past death and resurrection of Jesus has present experiential power in our lives right here, 
right now. It's not simply some event that we look back to. It's an event that actually, two events that actually set us free every single day here and now. And he says in these verses, we've, we've died and we're now alive. We've died and we are now alive. We're no longer burdened by having to justify ourselves and save ourselves, which is why he says it just, it doesn't make sense whatsoever that once you've been justified, you would burden yourself with self-justification projects. I mean, just, you've been set free. You're no longer under law. You're under grace which means that the pressure to rescue yourself has been relieved. You see, sin is trying to justify yourselves. It's one way to describe sin. That's what it is. When Paul talks about sin here reigning in your mortal bodies and that sort of thing, what he's talking about is the root of sin, which is you and me desperately trying to justify ourselves because we don't believe we've been justified. So you could put it this way. Unbelief is sort of the root of sin, and the first fruit of sin is self-justification. Because if we don't believe that everything we need in Christ we have, well, now we got to spend our lives going and getting all this stuff for ourselves, validating ourselves, going out and getting approval from other people because we have this longing to be approved, all of that stuff. And so when Paul's describing that here, he's saying sin is trying to justify yourselves, and he's saying, but you're dead. You can't justify yourself. You don't even need to try. It's impossible. You've been justified. And you've been resurrected to freedom. A life where self-justification doesn't have to be your MO. You, you, don't, you don't have to do it. You're dead. That, that person who was born into this enslaving realm of self-justification, Jesus put that person to death when he died. And then when Jesus rose, he rose that person to a brand new life, to newness of life, Paul says. Well, what is that newness of life? It's a life free of the burden to rescue yourself. Free of the burden of trying to save yourself and trying to validate your existence. So I love the way Robert Capon put it. This is beautiful, poetic, poetic. He says, to sin so that grace would increase is like a lover desiring to return to a state of unloving in order to experience falling in love all over again. It's impossible. That's what he says. And that's what Paul's getting at. Here. He's saying, what do you, of course, you, you don't get it. If you say, well, shall we shall sing? So grace me about that sounds like a good day. He says, what are you talking about? Okay, by no means. You're totally missing it. If that's what you think. You're dead. You've been killed. And you've been given brand new life. And the life that you have been given is a life free from pressure. Free from having to do for yourself what only God can do for you. You're dead. You've been raised to newness of life, a brand new free life, a life that allows you and enables you to laugh, not take yourself too seriously, 
Enjoy your work and your relationships without needing your work and your relationships to validate your existence. You know, you're now, you're now free to, um, to just enjoy life because you don't need a return on your investment. Everything you need in Christ you have, which is why you've heard me say before that every time we sin, we're in that moment suffering from an identity crisis. We're forgetting who we are. That's deadness. We're alive. We've been set free from those things that burden us and weigh us down. I, I am, before we come to the Lord's table, let me just say this. I, I woke up yesterday with this thought. Literally woke up like 11.30 in the morning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was praying for you guys at 4.30 a.m. Um, no, that's not true either. <clears throat> That's definitely, it, it's actually more realistic to believe I woke up at 11.30 than to believe that I was up at 4 o'clock in the morning praying for you guys. Terrible, I'm sorry, but it's true. I'm not a morning person. Um, once you get past that stage with kids being small where you're forced to get up at all hours of the night and blah, 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 and your kids get to the point where now your kids are sleeping till 11, 12, love it. It's like the best stage of life, you know, best stage in life. Almost not the best. The best is when they're actually gone. But second best is when they're sleeping till noon, okay? My mom had seven kids. This has nothing to do with my sermon. My mom had seven kids, and she would always wake us up on Saturday morning at like 8 o'clock. And I'm like, woman, this is your one shot. I mean, one day of the week, because tomorrow we go to church, yesterday we went to school. It's your one chance. All your kids want to sleep till noon, and you've got this sick sense of idealism that children shouldn't sleep past 8 o'clock in the morning, and you're punishing yourself. Anyway, okay. So I, I haven't made that same mistake with my children. Never wake your children if they're sleeping, ever. If they're asleep till 4 in the afternoon, thank God, never, ever, whether they're whether they're 16 months or 16 years old, let them sleep, all right? Okay, good. That's, that, you got more excited about that than anything I've said so far. That's pathetic. All right. So this is... <laughs> you guys, you need Jesus so bad. It's unbelievable. That's why I love you, because I do too. Um, okay, so <clears throat> let's get back to serious stuff now. Um, I woke up yesterday with this thought. This is the thought I woke up with yesterday. Every morning, I wake up to something infinitely better than a clean slate. I wake up perfectly loved and accepted despite my unclean slate. That's a thought that came to my mind yesterday. Because, you know, we, we say things like, you know, God's mercies are new every morning and and sometimes the way we understand that is, well, tomorrow we blew it, today we won't. Today I have an opportunity. Yesterday's gone, today is here. Yesterday I have an opportunity. I mean, today I have an opportunity to right the wrongs that I made yesterday. And as I said last week, God is not the God of second chances. He's the God of one chance and a second Adam. And what that means, because the God of second chances, a God of clean slates, doesn't help us, does it? Because you're going to blow it again today. And then you get, you know, midway through the morning and you say, well, today's shot, I'll just look forward to tomorrow, you know? 
Um, and every morning, if you are in Christ, every morning you wake up with something infinitely better than a clean slate. Infinitely deeper than a clean slate. You wake up every morning perfectly loved and accepted despite your ongoing unclean slate. You see, life, and this is the way Robert Capon put it too, life under grace is the life of a cripple on an escalator. Isn't that an unbelievable picture? I mean, that's life under grace. Is that, I mean, you just, and you're just, you can't do much. I mean, that, those kinds of things, doesn't that just grip your heart? That, that is the kind of power that makes desperate train wrecks like me lovers of God and lovers of other people. The radical gospel of grace doesn't, doesn't make you love God less. It makes you love Him more. I mean, when, when the gospel is perpetually and continually rehearsed by God's Spirit inside of you and constantly preaching the same three-word sermon every moment of every day, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. I mean, that just compels loyalty. When we sing songs like there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, does that make you go, oh, that's awesome. Now I can ignore God because I'm in. It makes me weep. Because I know. I know that I don't deserve one ounce of the love and affection that God gives me. Not one. I haven't earned it. I don't deserve it. And when God's constantly telling me, I love you, compels loyalty. It just, it, it, it's the same way that it works in your horizontal relationships. Same way. I mean, I've said this before, but when I'm, you know, if I'm being unkind to Kim and she reciprocates my unkindness with kindness, that doesn't make me want to be more unkind. It convicts me for being unkind and makes me want to be kind. So why would we think, and you know that's true in your, I mean, what, what happens to your heart when you are on the receiving end of forgiveness and you don't deserve it? What happens when someone that you've stabbed in the back tells you that they love you in spite of the fact that you stabbed them in the back? Does it make you want to pull out your knife and stab them again? No. So why do we think that preaching this stuff will make us love God less and love others less? It does something inside of you that makes you love God and others more. It unleashes an otherworldly love that comes one way from God and spills out from our lives into the lives of other people. And it makes us, it, it makes us quicker to forgive when we understand how deeply we've been forgiven. It makes us much more tolerant of people's mistakes because we know just how tolerant God continually is with our mistakes. It makes us more accepting. 
It makes us, there was something, ah, it's on my phone. I can't get it now. I'll read it next week. Um, but I mean, when we, when we understand the nature of God's love, it compels. It's so powerful. It compels, which is why Paul says, <laughs> you know, this stuff doesn't lead to licentiousness. It leads to love. God's one-way love doesn't lead to lawlessness. It leads to love. And that is, what is sanctification? Loving God and loving others. That's what it is. You want a short definition? That's what it is. Loving God and loving others. Well, what produces love for God and love for others? We love Him, 1 John says, because He first loved us. As Paul will say in Romans 7, the law is incapable of producing love. The law shows us that we need to love, but it doesn't compel love. Even when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the command itself doesn't produce love. It just shows us the standard. It's God's love for us that produces love in us, that spills out from us, which is why Paul says that grace doesn't get in the way of you loving God and others. Grace produces love for God and others, which is the new and free life that we've been freely given. That's what it is. And that's what we celebrate. When we gather around the Lord's table, we celebrate the fact that God loves us. And he gave his son to die for us. Why? So that love in our hearts would be created through faith for God and spill out from our life into the lives of other people. Because the fact of the matter is, the one thing this world needs more of is love. Because laws, can law change anybody? Can law change anything? It's never been able to do it. If the Ten Commandments couldn't do it, I'm telling you, the president can't do it. Congress can't do it. Your votes can't do it. The law is incapable. I love when Rick Warren says, if I actually thought the law could produce heart change, I would have been a politician. I don't, so I became a preacher. Okay? I mean, that's, that's the truth. And so... That's what the world needs, and that's what we taste and see. When we eat the bread and we drink the cup, and God reminds us by His Spirit, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Nothing can separate you from my love. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is finished, paid in full, you're in.